Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. You again? What are you doing back here? Oh, that's right. You're a subscriber. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Please add us and engage us on Twitter at M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M. We're also posting a lot of content on SoundCloud. You can access that through Twitter or you can go there directly. SoundCloud.com backslash M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M. Become part of the Clarity community and conversation. Not part of the problem. As you all probably know by now, I'm the sort of guy who enjoys stirring the pot. And by that, I mean I enjoy to cook. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and a festive yule. If you have any favorite seasonal recipes, please email me at claritylerry at gmail.com or tag me on Twitter. First off, I'm going to cover a few news stories that caught my attention. After that, we're joined by the comedic writer and Gregory for our interview segment. But right now, I'd like to get into Larry's Roundup. Yeehaw! Well, I really don't think that's appropriate or good. Don't ever put that in again. In an article for The Cut, Annette Silman writes about a topic that we've returned to a couple times. What do we do about Louis C.K.? We've talked about what he's done, and we've also talked about how the comedy establishment seems to largely be letting him back on stage. Silman's take is a more personal one, and she writes, As someone who attends comedy clubs frequently, I've thought a lot about what I would do if Louis C.K. showed up to perform while I was there. Over the past few months, the comedian has been making surprise appearances at venues around the country in an attempt at a comeback. In his sets, CK has shown zero willingness to reckon with the allegations against him that he masturbated in front of a number of women without their consent. I'm going to quibble a little bit here. I don't think these are allegations. He may not have faced criminal charges, but I think it's confirmed what happened. Silman then brings up the moral quandary a lot of us would have when faced with a performance by Louis C.K. Would I walk out in a bold declaration of my feminist principles? Would I sit quietly through it in the name of civility and morbid curiosity? Or, unlike the many audiences that have excitedly cheered him on, would I have the balls to call him out face to face? I too have wrestled with some of the same thoughts. What's an appropriate response? In reaction to the comedy seller offering Louis C.K. back his platform, I suggested taking your business elsewhere. But if all the other major comedy venues follow suit and give him stage time, boycotting one venue's not going to have much of an impact. I'm not someone who generally endorses heckling, but I do think this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Luckily for Silman and myself, someone else took initiative. Claire Randall, a.k.a. At killer underscore Claire, that's Claire with a K, happened to be catching a show with the comedy seller when Louis C.K. made a surprise appearance. Partway through his set, when there was a lull, Claire yelled, Get your dick out! Stunning C.K. And oh man, is that the perfect response. She and her boyfriend were then asked to leave by security. 
I truly appreciate how that simultaneously shames CK for his behavior, but in this context, it's also kind of a feminist response to show us your tits. I hope this stays with him and gives him a taste of what he put women who trusted and admired him through. I'd also like to read a statement by Claire. All I could think of at the time was that I would never be able to forgive myself if I had this perfect opportunity to publicly call out an abuser to his face and I just quietly sat there. I didn't have another choice in my mind. I was just thinking about every woman I know who has been sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, or bullied in some way or another. And to see the rest of the audience just be so excited and legitimately happy that he was there was scary because I knew that everyone else was on his side. And again, I commend Claire here. I think in this situation, her heckling was appropriate. As articles and myself have suggested, Louis C.K. is uniquely positioned to create his own platform. He has his own distribution. He's already released material by himself. So why are venues like the Comedy Cellar giving him stage time? Someone else deserves that opportunity. Ideally, one of the women that he hurt. The advertising agency Ogilvy had an interesting project for Schweppes, the beverage company. For their branch in Brazil, they came up with a project titled The Dress for Respect. Here's some details from the Quartzi newsletter by Sangita Singh Kurtz. Researchers built a dress embedded with sensor technology that tracked touch and pressure. The information was then relayed to a visual system so that researchers could essentially track harassment in real time. To test the dress, researchers sent three women to a party wearing it. Throughout the night, we see a heat map version of it steadily laid up in the areas where women are being grabbed, mostly the lower back, backside, and arms. The visual is imposed over footage of the woman brushing off the men and asking not to be touched. In just under four hours, the women are touched a combined 157 times. I gotta say, you're presenting a common problem in a way that's very easy to visually understand. Creating a dress with sensors that not only show where you're being touched, but the pressure of that contact. It's truly a great way for those of us who aren't women to understand what they go through on a daily basis. The cynic that I am, I recognize that Ogilvy and Schweppes are probably not doing this for female empowerment. I think it's being done for pragmatic reasons, but I do commend them for using their platform for this kind of content. Unfortunately, the Twitter comments aren't quite as uplifting. Mariana Mava at MS Mava, in response to seeing how much these women are groped, writes, I find myself wondering why people go to these clubs in the first place. And to me, that recalls some of the discussion we've had about fraternities, with campus police telling victims, why did you get drunk at a frat party? Don't you know what's going to happen? That's putting the onus on the victim, not the men who are misbehaving. In a similar fashion, Prosper, a.k.a. at Chris Christopher, with no E at the end, completely misses the point. He writes, Can you do a test next to see how many times my wallet gets groped by women when I go to clubs? How many drinks men have to give away to selfish women? Can you track how many women come with their boyfriend and use other men for free drinks? How many pretend to be available? 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time on responding to this because there's almost nothing that warrants an honest dialogue. Chris's analogy is terrible. His misogyny is transparent. And to be frank, he sounds like a bitter dick. If you can't understand how a woman being groped by someone she does not give consent to is different than offering to buy a woman a drink, I don't know how to help you. No one is forcing you to buy anyone a drink. And if you do buy a drink, no one is under any obligation to reciprocate that in any way. Period. Another Christopher, this time with an E, Christopher Jones, a.k.a. at Jones3D writes, Is it possible that some of the contact recorded is just incidental and typical of bumping into one another in a crowded, drunken place? Yes, Christopher. I'm sure that might have been the case. Perhaps the data is slightly inaccurate. That doesn't negate everything else. This, to me, recalls the argument, well, some women lie about sexual assaults, therefore we shouldn't believe any of them. A study like this is likely going to be imperfect, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable. Christopher's immediate urge to find problems with the methodology troubles me. I think we should always be critical of what we're reading or watching, but if you come in with an agenda, you're likely to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think with this specific experiment, cataloging the pressure of that contact would do a lot to mitigate what Christopher's worried about. If someone brushes against you, sure, but if they grip your arm tightly or the small of your back, that's clearly non-consensual and a problem. And finally, I'd like to point out how even well-intentioned responses can come across as insensitive or unsympathetic. Brandon Rail, aka at Retail Brandon, writes, Simply shocking, but thankfully, this will raise some transparency about this issue. Sean Merrow, at Sean Merrow, that's S-H-A-U-N-M-A-R-O, has a perfect response. Hopefully, because it's not shocking at all, not to women. And since women have been saying that this happens constantly for decades, the fact that so many men find it shocking says something about not just groping, but how our culture treats women and their words. I commend you, Sean. You express that in a very articulate way. And on Twitter, that should count as a miracle. Sean's response is also appropriate for Mariana Mava's comment. We should worry less about why people go to clubs like this and recognize that groping happens everywhere. Public transportation, the workplace, in restaurants, on the street. Should women avoid going to all those places? Or do you want to victim blame some more? It's hard to pick what stories to cover since so many amazing and horrible things are happening all the time. I'd like to encourage you listeners to submit suggestions. I'll give credit where it's due and try to give you a fair and balanced look at the topic or story you pick. Hold on. I think fair and balanced is trademarked. How about opinionated and taciturn? That seems more on brand anyways. Next up, my interview with Anne Gregory.
Welcome to Clarity. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ann Gregory. You're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Yes. Are there any experiences unique to that region that shaped you as a person? Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I grew up in this place called Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, which is right outside of Milwaukee, like 10 minutes, 15 maybe. And it was kind of an idyllic childhood. Like you're right by Lake Michigan. The public schools were amazing. But everyone is a little funnier to me in the Midwest. The accents are like this. And, you know, people like talk about their bodily functions. And it's just different. I love writing things and setting things in Milwaukee because it's very specific to me. Friday night fish fries, bowling. The high school bias, Shorewood High School, I believe has like a bowling alley in it. That's how much bowling is big there. In the high school? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that could be seen as like PE. That's a workout is bowling. Intriguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it definitely informs me. What do you think are some unfair stereotypes applied to the Midwest? Well, I think specifically now with all of the political divide, people are like, oh, the middle of the country is ruining the country. And I, I don't think that's fair. I think that there are differences of opinions wherever you go. And I think there are kind people and shitty people wherever you go. One thing, Milwaukeeans are known for like partying hard and like drinking more. And that's just kind of true. That's like one of those stereotypes. It's kind of true. Also, their accents make them sound like very happy. They seem really, really happy, but they might not be. I'm sure Jeffrey Dahmer, when he was like murdering people, he sounded happy and polite. I gotta say, a disproportionate amount of serial killers seem to come from Wisconsin. Yeah, that's what 12 months of winter are going to do to you. Like, more like six, but it's a lot of winter. Maybe less now with global warming. A bright spot to global warming? That, that is a good spin on it. Yeah. We talked a little about how you grew up, but yeah. what inspired you to pursue a career in entertainment? And what aspects of the industry appealed to you the most? I always did plays. And I'd make little videos with my friends. I would shoot mock commercials with my friends, no joke, when I was a little kid. Then I, I kind of went the way of sports for a while because I, I was a cross-country runner. In general, if you ask any women who did cross-country, the women you meet in that, it's a great place. So I, I found that. I was actually pretty good. And then I got injured my junior year and I became pretty depressed because I was just like running all the time. And so you have the chemical changes in your body when you're not like the dopamine or whatever. And I discovered comedy sports, which is improv comedy in Milwaukee. And I was on a high school league and it like really changed my life around. I was like, oh, OK, no, 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 no. This is what I like. I like plays and I like running because I like the camaraderie and I like the competition about it. But I really, 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 really love this. Everything I've done since then has kind of been informed by improv, whether it's writing. Because in a writer's room, you do kind of have to improvise constantly. I guess some people prepare the night before, and sometimes you do that. You have homework or whatever, but mostly it's just shooting the shit, riffing on jokes, riffing on ideas, storylines that you do in the room. So improv really informs that. And then the other thing that I've done a ton of is commercial work as an actor, and that's a ton of improv too. So you have the copy when you come in, but then they kind of want a button that fits the scene. So it kind of uses that writer and improviser part of my brain simultaneously. That's wonderful. Yeah. With your first performance of improv, yeah. how were you received by the audience? Great. That's all another thing. Like That's the only reason I ran, too, Like at first, is because I wasn't that sporty of a kid. I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't a natural athlete. If you look at me, I'm like five foot one. I don't look like a natural athlete. But we had to run the half mile in fifth grade. 
and I beat all but one boy in my grade. And I was like, holy shit. You know, you, like when you're naturally good at something, maybe I shouldn't love things for that reason. But when you're a kid, it kind of is like, oh, this makes me special. This is different. That's the only reason I did cross country. No one else in my family runs. How did the rest of the class respond to you beating almost everyone in the race? I'm pretty sure no one cared, <laughs> except like me internally. I was like, yes, I'm good at some sport. Because I did gymnastics before that, and I sucked. And my two best friends also did club gymnastics. They were great, and I was just barely getting by, and I was chubby, and it sucked. And then I found a sport that I was good at. And that's what it felt like to discover improv. I was like, oh, huh, this kind of rewards my sense of humor. I was the youngest of three girls, so I kind of knew I was funny. But, you know, your older sisters kind of have to hate you as well. So I didn't get the laughs at home. I'd have to try really hard. Do you think that's something that drives people towards comedy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's getting that feeling of appreciation. Getting the laughs is like a drug. It's so fun. And then I, I think right away I was like, huh, my point of view is not like everyone's point of view, but I can connect to people in certain ways. And that's the fun of comedy to me, bringing your specific sensibility to something that's universal. I think you could apply that to pretty much all art. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Share your voice and your work's going to have impact. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think before there were fewer programs on television, but now like almost everything's niche now. There are some broader programs out there, but you find what you like. Uh, One thing I watched was the Gary Shandling documentary. I did too. Which was fantastic. Yeah. But he has a moment where he curses his first performance because he did well. He got audience support and then bombed for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Is that different in the stand-up world as opposed to improv with a group? No, I think it's similar. And I also did stand-up, although I wasn't a stand-up. I dabbled in it. I would do sets around town, but I never like went on the road and traveled. And to be a stand-up, it like requires your blood, sweat and tears and everything in you. So I didn't I didn't have that. But I also did really well in my first stand-up set and same thing, fucking bombed afterwards, especially when I went to like the comedy store and things like that, which is just brutal. Same with improv. I mean, it's improv. Sometimes you're going to have a shitty show and you have fewer and fewer the more that you do it. And if you're performing with people that you know and you've performed with before, you do better sets. But yeah, it, it gets it in you. It's like your first time doing heroin or something. It's like, ah, now I need my next fix. Uh, I'll try not to do heroin as much. No, I, I don't I don't use heroin. Do you think that's healthy, though, that craving? No, I think it is trying to fill a void that you have in you. And then you kind of realize, huh, that it's unfillable. <laughs> it gets larger. I think you have to enjoy the work part of it. If you're a stand-up, you have to enjoy the joke writing. You have to enjoy going up, even if you bomb the majority of the set, looking for that one thing that connects to the audience. Right now, I'm more writing than anything else, and you have to enjoy the process of writing. It can still be fucking painful, but those fun scenes that you're writing, those things that you're excited to write about, that's why you do it. The void is external validation, and I feel like you kind of have to get your validation from wanting to do the work. I don't know. I'm not there yet. I have days when I'm good at it, and then days where I'm a piece of shit. That sounds like a very healthy attitude. I don't know. (laughs) And... One thing that came across my mind is you said sometimes you have a shitty performance. Yeah. Sometimes you have a shitty audience, too. Oh, for sure. Or your voice is different than somebody else's taste level. Two people can go into the same movie and one person can say, that was amazing. Another person can say, that was terrible, you know, and that's valid. Art is subjective. So comedy is very subjective. Man, people like, (laughs) 
love to trash Adam Sandler, but if there's an Adam Sandler movie on, I will watch it and love it. I won't really love the story, but he's just so funny and stupid. That's probably the Milwaukee in me, too, is like silly, stupid humor. I will never not love that kind of humor. Hey, his latest stand-up's pretty solid. Well, that's where he came from. I mean, like, he's doing it because he loves it, and that's great. And for me, you see how talented he truly is. Yeah. As a musician, as a singer, yeah. as a comedian. Yeah. I was listening to, like, his big album. I was listening to it with my husband. I was like, this is really funny. Except for some things, like, don't age well. But I'm saying, like, because he was edgy. Any edgy comedians in woke 2018, you're like, oh, good. That was kind of funny, but you're not allowed to fucking do that anymore. Is there anyone, based off what you just said, <laughs> that you're like, oh, man, I can't really listen to this person anymore? Oh, I don't want to say this because I don't want to shit on anyone because, no, this guy is a genius. So Larry David is a goddamn genius. Seinfeld is still my favorite, and I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. But when the latest season came out, it was pretty soon after the election, and I was just like, I this isn't as funny anymore, but like I'll, I can watch this in a year and it's going to be funny again. I think it was just a white dude complaining. I was just like, I, 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 there's no room for it. But I should watch it again, and probably I'll love it. There's like the timing of things coming out. It's true. But he's somebody, if Larry Davis, there's no way Larry Davis listening. I, I, I love you, Larry. He actually saw my daughter on a flight once and was like, oh, well, redhead. I was like, yeah, a no, redhead. We make connections in strange ways. <laughs> yes. But to change gears a little yeah. bit, here on the podcast, we think that defining terms is critical to fully understanding each other. That sounds very deep. Uh, we try. Okay, cool. It's mostly treading water. But okay, okay, great. But in this case, what does feminism mean to you and how does it impact your life? Oh, okay. So feminism, what it means to me is equal opportunities. Not that we're inherently equal because that's not true. Just in terms of the physiology or hormones, but that equal opportunities. And how I've seen it as being a woman in comedy and mostly as recently as like a woman in writer's rooms is not this overt sexism, more like a tokenism. I'm in there as the woman. And not because I'm not as funny as the other guys, just because they needed a voice for the female characters and I served that role. I've experienced sexism more in that, like, sometimes you're in a room full of men. As a woman's voice, they can't hear you. There's studies that men cannot hear women's voices sometimes. So Absolutely. So, like, I would pitch a joke and it wouldn't be heard. And then another guy would have kind of heard me and then, like, picked up my joke and pitched it. Not in a mean way, but to, like, keep the ball going, you know? And so I've experienced it in that way, which is frustrating. But then you kind of realize how to work within those parameters. And I think a dangerous thing that came out of tokenism is that you kind of see other women as your competition, which is fucking bullshit. And as I'm getting older, especially just working with wonderful women, not seeing it as a competition. If we're both staffed on the same show, our end goal is to make the show as good and as funny as possible, right? They hired us for our different voices. So just because we're women, we're not the same. To not be as competitive with other women. I, not that I ever really was, but I think it was subconsciously in my brain from being in comedy. Because you would go into a club and you'd be the only woman. Or you'd be on an improv team and you'd be the only woman. You get this mentality that, oh, there's only one spot for me. Which is kind of bullshit. Absolutely. Know? So that's one thing. I mean, I did have like a piece of shit executive producer when I was still an actor who would sexually harass me. 
he would go like, you're just like a, a three, but I'd fuck you anyway. So he was not only like maybe sexually harassing me. I don't think it was actually se- sexual harassment. I'm not sure. But it was putting down my looks at the workplace. And then you're supposed to be creative for 10 hours and pitch on fart jokes. And you're like, what, what the fuck, man? I think that definitely applies to sexual harassment. I know. Yeah, I know. And I didn't realize it at the time, too, because another thing being in comedy is like you're supposed to be cool. You're supposed to be down for the hang. And it's you're at work. I don't want to have to go out and play basketball right now. I'm on the fucking clock. Let's get this fucking scene written so I can go home to my babies. I don't get that part of it, I think, is kind of yucky. And like a a holdover from Mad Men or some shit, like, you know, like we have to have a three martini lunch. No, I don't want to have like a martini at lunch. Like I want to have an iced tea, like a normal person, and then go home, you know? I love it when I'm here, but I want to work. That's why I'm here is to work, not to talk about girls you banged, like after you're set at the comedy club. I don't want to fucking hear that a girl sucked your toes, nameless comedian that you guys have probably (laughs) like just that shit that you go through. That's truly discouraging, and I'm sorry to hear you go through this. No, but if you ask, if you scratch the surface, I'm really hoping with up-and-comers that they're not going to have as many of these stories, you know? And I do think there's less fear about talking about them. And then I think there's also just, there's more awareness that this is not acceptable. And I think the biggest thing is just kind of organically putting more women in rooms so that there isn't that tokenism and there isn't this false notion of being competitive. So right now I'm up for something that I'd be executive producing this young up and coming writer and she's brilliant. And I'm super excited because to see women coming up without fear, it's fucking awesome. Feminism to me is like supporting each other, but not like this false sense I have to love every woman. That's not feminism. That's not realistic. There are asshole dudes. There are asshole gals. There are assholes. You don't have to like those people. If you find yourself being like, oh, why am I being extra weird towards that other woman? Maybe that's internalized misogyny. You know what I mean? Like maybe take a step back and be like, oh, I'm being extra hard on her because she's the only woman in the room with me. That seems like a strategy men might use where if they're limited women in these roles, yeah. To play them off of each other is only going to strengthen the male dominance of the field. Huh. Yeah, maybe. That sounds like it's right. I don't even know if it's that strategic. It It, probably is. It might be giving those men a little too much credit. (laughs) I I agree with that. Yeah, I think so. One thing that you mentioned is physically not being heard by men. Yes. And there have been other studies where women are the amount they talk is also misinterpreted. Where if a woman says a little bit, oh, she's going on and on. There's this weird disconnect between the reality of the situation and what's perceived. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's funny. It's like, get to the point. Especially in writer's rooms, it's like, get to the point. (laughs) But I've been with male writers, a lovely guy, but his stories were so long-winded. And I'm like, if you were a woman, you would not be able to be this long-winded. The only, this sounds terrible. Never mind. Scratch that. You sure? I knew one woman who got away with being long-winded, but she was literally a model. And that sounds like, that sounds like I'm not a feminist. No, it's more like the episode of 30 Rock when John Hamm was the doctor who was like a terrible doctor. Do you remember that one? Yeah, and yeah, it was I just because he was hot. It's the kind of similar thing. Hey, I mean, these are parts of life. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I do want you to feel like this is a safe space. Okay. And I'm not trying to paint you in a bad light. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can avoid some of these more conscientious yeah, yeah. points. So you covered kind of a lot of the questions I was going to ask just <laughs> organically, which is always wonderful. Okay. Extensive research using Google has revealed that you graduated from Stanford. Yes, yes. 
you had a major in drama and a minor in medieval studies. Yes. Since you work in entertainment as yeah. an actor, writer, and sometimes director, yeah. drama degree makes a lot of sense. But do you ever incorporate that minor in medieval studies? Yeah, all the time. Everything takes place in the medieval times. Um, no, <laughs> I, um, I think I did it because it was interdisciplinary. So there was a little bit of religion, a little bit of art history, a little bit of history, a little bit of English. So I liked that because you didn't have to <laughs> delve that deep into any of it. I really, really loved my time there. But I got to Stanford and I was like, oh, my God, a lot of these people are like really smart, like really, really smart. And I'm pretty smart, but these people are really smart. So I <laughs> I stumbled across it. I took like one art history class and I was like, this is rad. And I loved history. I still love history, like reading a book on Teddy Roosevelt right now. I just like love history. And it was e- it was kind of easy. I graduated in like three and a half years because I just knew I wasn't going to go into academia. I knew I wasn't going to go to grad school. I knew other people there were smart in ways that I was not. And I was like, oh, let's just get out of here. The jig is up. My ac- academic career is up. Maybe you were the smart one in that situation. Though. I don't know. I saved I saved a little money. So something. Do you think that based on where you are now, that getting an undergraduate degree affected your career? Or do you even need that in the entertainment field? In terms of a career, absolutely not. In terms of life, yes. One thing that I appreciate there, and this is going to sound elitist, and you know what? Like, I don't care. I was very lucky. I came from a very middle class background. I got great scores on my SAT, and I got into Stanford, and I had financial aid, and I was able to go. But it did teach me to always be curious that you never know all of the answers and that the truth lies in the gray. That was like our graduation speech. Never think you know everything. You are a lifelong learner. And my friends that went there in general have that philosophy. You're not an expert. And to be in this industry, the best people in this industry are curious and are constantly reading or watching movies if that's not your jam reading taking stuff in and being open to it, and critical thinking. And I know that can sound elitist, but I'm really not trying to be. There's no right answer. There are terrible things on both sides of the political aisle. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is to look with a critical eye at things is great, and it's wonderful in this industry. And does it directly affect whether I get something or not? No. But I do think it helps me to think of complex characters when I'm writing, to think in terms of interesting ways to tell a story. You don't need it. And it could be considered a waste of money. You could also get the same thing like it's goodwill hunting by just continually going to the library. It's just engendering something in yourself that keeps you curious, I think is very good. And that's amazing mentality. Yeah. I'm glad you gained that from that experience. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky. Yeah. Did you get any of that from high school or was it primarily no, that was like achievement oriented. I was like, I'm going to get straight A's. And like my parents were like, kind of chill out, you know, but I was like, I got to get straight A's. I'm going to go to state for cross country. And I was very, very driven and achievement oriented. And I went to Stanford where there were people who were just simply better at things than I was. Like the people on the cross country team there, way better than me. So being around people and appreciating them for being good at other stuff and not being competitive with them, which I think is a good thing to learn. Oh, I want to surround myself with people who are also good at something, but good at something like maybe that I'm not good at. That's kind of fun and cool. So I got there and that was the biggest gift. My oldest sister also went to Stanford and she kind of got depressed because she was going to be an engineer and some of the engineering courses were really, really difficult. And it was to kind of weed out, you know, some of the lessers and she just, she switched to history and music. She kind of went through that and I kind of already knew going in that I wouldn't be (laughs) like the smartest person. I don't know if that's even the right way. Like just there there was like a guy on my freshman dorm. 
he threw the curve in physics. Do you know what I mean? Like his score was so good that they just like threw it out. And he was up till 3 a.m. drinking and just never studying. It was like real genius. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, With Val yeah. Kilmer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like those, uh, honestly, like freaks. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I work kind of hard. I inherently have some smarts, but it's a combination and I'm definitely not a genius. So I need to work for this. It can be humbling. And yeah. like you're saying, that can be beneficial too. Yeah, yeah, I think it was for me. And if you just assume, oh, I'm the best at everything. No one's better than me. Then you become Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so. Uh. Feel free to be political. <laughs> That's not even like that political anymore. You know what I mean? I agree. <laughs> Some people will be a little sensitive towards it, but whatever. Oh, you know, he, he thinks he's the best at everything. I think that's not even stretching that much. We talked about the medieval studies. Yeah. Do Renaissance fairs appeal to you? Oh, yeah. Okay. I get this a lot. Well, um, <laughs> so Renaissance fairs are after the medieval times, but actually Renaissance fairs, this is going to get dorky. Most of the dress and the games from it come from the late medieval times, kind of spanning from probably what was the Italian Renaissance. It's kind of a combination of things. So when they say a run fair, there are medieval elements there. Yeah, I recognize that the Renaissance is definitely a separate period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I thought there might be some overlap. Yeah, like jousting. Wait, I was just curious because on prior episodes, we've talked about stigmatized interests like Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering... If a Renaissance fair is something that you've enjoyed. I've never gone to one. I was just on a show and we wrote about a, a Ren fair. And so I did a lot of research, but I've never, I've never gone to one. This sounds bad, but I, I don't like do d and I don't play video games. Sometimes I feel like a freak in writer's rooms. I like going to the LA Phil. I don't, I don't know. Like what the fuck? I like to read. I'm like a dork, but not really. I don't know. Everyone has their interests. Did that research on Ren fairs. Yeah. Increase your interest and maybe... I would go, for sure. What's holding you back? I want to take my kids. I don't know. Just I was really busy. I was just working. That's the one thing about being a working mom is you can't go to a lot of this stuff, but I want to. Well, my kids I are hope f- you attend. I, uh, thank you. I'll take pictures. I'll send them to you. I have not been myself, but I'm again, I'm intrigued by yeah. anything that inspires this much passion. I think yeah, that yeah. there has to be something engaging about it. The, the other reason that I did medieval studies, I was raised Catholic, and I was like, how did the Catholic Church become what the Catholic Church is? And you find out that the way that it became what it is now is very political, economical, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with religion. And that was interesting to me. Absolutely. Do you want to expand upon that? Or is oh, that just... man. Uh, yeah, I can't later. I don't know. I mean, like, also, here's the truth is, like, I forget a lot of shit. I am sleep deprived. <laughs> and so I can broad strokes it. That sounds gross. Sorry. <laughs> well, this, this is your platform. Yeah, so yeah, I want you to. Yeah. I'm asking you questions, but really no, feel free to disregard them. Okay. Go wherever you want. Ask me. Ask me anything. Ask me anything. Uh, changing focus a little bit, you've worked extensively with Upright Citizens Brigade. Uh-huh. How do collectives like that benefit actors and writers? I didn't go to grad school, but I feel like my grad school was the now defunct IO and UCB. What is IO? Uh, that was Improv Olympic. It started in Chicago, Del Close, who then UCB started from Del Close, too. That went from Chicago to New York and then to L.A. You're surrounded by a lot of people, a lot of whom are really, really funny, working really hard and wanting to do shows. So you kind of learn by doing, getting up on stage, finding stage time, wherever you can do it, trying to get on a house team. I was lucky and I got on house teams and performing for amazing crowds. You learn what's working, what's not working. You learn to find your voice. 
I put up a couple of my own shows and one of them was a solo show, a one woman show. And it was really great. And it was so much fun to do and scary and great. I'm still friends with a lot of those people, um, even though I don't really do any live comedy anymore, just simply because I'm a mom. And I know that shouldn't stop me, but I'm also in the writer's room. So it's kind of like right at this point, I don't have the bandwidth to do it at night as well. So I'm just doing my day jobs. And then at some point when the kids are older, I might do it again. But then who wants to hear <laughs> who wants to hear from a middle-aged lady by that point? It was really great. It was a great experience. Can you define house team? So they have Harold and Maud teams. Harold teams are improv, and you do the Harold, which is long-form improv. And then I did a Maud team as well, and that is a sketch comedy team. You're getting different muscles. So on the Maud teams at the time, and I don't know if this is still true, you would have one part of the group would write, and another half would act. So strangely on that, I was on the actor side of things. This was before I really made the shift to writing. And then the Herald team, it's improv, so you're using kind of both muscles at the same time. You're responding, you're in the moment, you're not technically writing, but I think it kind of works a similar muscle in your brain. It was great. It was really, really fun. And a lot of really nice people. It's very competitive to get, especially on the Herald teams, but remembering that all comedy is subjective, and then each Herald team is kind of like a mini repertory company, so it's like you're filling like a niche of what kind of comedy you do. So it's a very disappointing time of the year for a lot of up-and-comers, but keep on doing it. And then if UCB isn't your jam, find a theater that you love, or maybe improv isn't your jam, and you'd rather do storytelling, or you'd rather write short stories, or you'd rather go and do sketch. I really loved it there because I really love improv as a way to create. So that was a great fit. But for some other people, if you're going to like a theater just to get exposure, then it can be very frustrating. The way now with like YouTube and all sorts of avenues, like you don't have to be one thing. Just be your voice. What people do I want to hang out with? Who do I want to create with? And then kind of organically, you never know when that will come back and help your career. But the more you push for it, I feel like it's just in my experience, it's gross and it doesn't really work out and you might as well do what you love. And like you said before, you got to put in the work too. You got to put in a lot of work. Yeah. You know, and you got to love the work. And it's not like love and like, a, like sometimes you look at what you're writing and you're like, this is a fucking garbage. This is terrible. Like I am terrible. And that is normal to hate what you're doing. That means that you're not a sociopath who thinks that everything they do is great. You have some self-awareness, which is one of the reasons you're probably a creator. A lot of creative types are very self-aware and are very aware of the world around them and very sensitive. It's okay to not like what you wrote, but the process if you want to be a writer and getting an idea in your head makes you so excited that you have to fucking write it down or say it into your, like, your phone right now, that's a good sign. You should do it because those moments you love. You don't have to love the entire process. Like rewriting fucking sucks. Getting notes from like a production company or whatever, it's not fun for anyone, but you learn to work with that. Well, that's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about finding your voice? I think it was through trial and error. I think when you're starting, it's very, very normal to admire somebody and mimic them. You hear a lot of stand-ups who listen to albums and then do the sets and memorize them or sketch comedy. Like I think Kate McKinnon said that she used to put on SNL skits with her sister as a little kid. That's so normal. You don't have to have your voice when you're 20. That's absurd. Some people do, and that's awesome. But for comedy, what makes you giggle to yourself? Always. What makes you giggle when you're watching something? Okay, 
what is true about your life that might not be true about other people? Let's explore that. What's something you noticed that you can articulate in a funny way? It's a process and your voice changes. I was a different comic before I had kids. Then kids become a major thing in your life and a major thing that occupies most of your brain all the time. So that's going to inform what you're creating. I'm married. I've been married for almost 10 years. So my voice tends to be people in relationships. You know, I can write for single people and that's fun, but my voice is probably going to come from somebody who's married and has kids and is struggling with that. Probably there's some insight that I can offer there. You can also come from it from a negative way. It doesn't have to be positive. It's like, what pisses you off? Like more of a Larry David, <laughs> going back to Larry David. What he's so brilliant at is, oh, yeah, that thing pissed me off too. But he just takes it to the nth degree and calls it out. And then that gets thrown in his face and causes problems. That will also inform your voice. Trial and error. Just keep on doing the reps. Well, you mentioned drawing upon your experience of being married and having yeah. children mm-hmm. to create characters. Yeah. Do you think someone who isn't married and doesn't have children can really capture a character who does? Oh, yes, I do. A hundred percent. A lot of creation is imagination. And if you can imagine that and be specific, if you can draw on examples that you've seen, it's even better. If you can have empathy for your characters, then that can bring out a lot of comedy, too. And I've written a lot of single characters, too. I'm just saying, what am I going to get hired for? Probably is a female voice. And then probably also is relationship stuff or kids. That's wonderful. And I do think we tend to overfocus on authenticity, where only the person who went through that can voice a character. Well, here's the truth about that, too, is like a lot of people who go out and pitch a story, a lot of it's BS. Probably something little happened in their life, and then they kind of blow it up, and there's like artistic license. So it informs the creative aspect of their brain. But does most good stuff come from a degree of truth? Yeah, but that can be a specific character that comes from a character in your life. It could be a weird scenario you went through that could be the catalyst for a story. It doesn't have to be beginning, middle, end, something you lived through. It doesn't have to be a biopic. Instead of our sponsorship section, the following is a mandatory PSA. Like many men, I'm missing a little upstairs. Alopecia, or pattern baldness, is a life-threatening condition that affects the confidence and career choices of one in five Americans. That includes women, but men like me are disproportionately affected. According to AmericanHairLoss.org, my homepage, by 35, two-thirds of American men experience some kind of appreciable hair loss. I certainly didn't appreciate it. Not to be outdone, UK-based Express reports that baldness in men is most frequent in the Czech Republic at 42.79%, followed by Spain, Germany, France, the UK, and the US. Emily Hodgkin writes, Ladies, if you can't stand the thought of running your hands over your partner's balding head, then you should consider moving to China, where the least number of men go bald. Japan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, 
Thailand, Taiwan, and South Korea also have low levels of male pattern baldness. Apparently, those of Native American and African heritage are also less likely to go bald. And when they do, they experience less hair loss. But the news isn't all bad. According to another article from Express by Helen Coffey, in three studies conducted by Albert E. Mance, I haven't seen a picture, but that sounds like someone who might be bald. Participants were shown an image of a man with hair and then another with their hair digitally removed. Surprisingly, the participants viewed the bald versions as more dominant, masculine, and confident with greater leadership. But wait, there's more. The bald men were also thought to be taller and stronger than those with hair. According to Manns, much research has suggested that these traits, in particular dominance, indicate how successful a person is likely to be. I'm going to double down on my theory that Albert E. Manns is bald or balding. However, this all came with a significant caveat. This perception of dominance only worked for those whose heads were completely shaven. Having thinning hair or bald patches made the men appear weaker, less confident, and less masculine than either those with a full head of hair or those who were completely bald. You may be asking yourself, Larry, what does this have to do with women and gender equality? I'm getting to that. Just give me a moment. I need to schedule a haircut. I'm looking like St. Bartholomew over here. Anyways, the reason I brought all of this up is because I was wondering how living in a patriarchy affects sexual selection as opposed to in a matriarchy. If women were equal or held more power than men, would traits like baldness diminish or disappear altogether? To get to the bottom of this fascinating theory, the Clarity team conducted an exhaustively scientific study on six modern-day matriarchies. The Masuo, who live near Tibet, the Menang Kabao from West Sumatra, Indonesia, the Khan in Ghana, the Bri Bri in Costa Rica, the Garo in Northeast India, and the Nago VC, who live near New Guinea. Like always, I apologize for my ignorance on pronunciation. Feel free to correct me. Our rigorous methodology involved searching for photos on Google of men from these societies and seeing if they were bald or balding. The results may shock you. Men in matriarchies seem to really like hats. This proved to be an unforeseen variable, and frankly, we weren't prepared for that contingency. With very little evidence to support this claim, I'm confident to declare that men in matriarchies appear tastefully hirsute. We found next to no detectable baldness. The only exception was from the Minang Kabao from West Sumatra, where we were able to confirm a few cases of baldness. Also, the Khan men from Ghana seemed to prefer shaved heads, but had enviable hairlines. While I wish we had some Western matriarchies to contrast modern statistics to, there appears to be merit to this groundbreaking theory. Patriarchy, as we defined earlier, seems to be rooted in agriculture, pun intended, property ownership, and the concept of fatherhood, which arose roughly 6,000 years ago. In Egypt and the Near East, there were signs of male-dominated cultures dating back to around 5,000 years ago. So perhaps that influence on early Western cultures contributed to the aggressively patriarchal cultures that now suffer from the highest rates of baldness, namely the West. Thanks a lot, agriculture.